0: I think we need to have a more evenly dispersed innovation economy, and we need to make sure that anybody anywhere with an idea has a shot, even a shot at the American dream. That's Steve Case, and this
1: is The Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. How are you guys doing? My name is Rich Roll. I am your host. Welcome to the Rich Roll Podcast, the show where I have the great privilege of probing the hearts and the minds of some of the most interesting and inspiring thought leaders and positive change makers across a wide variety of disciplines and specialties, everything from doctors to world-class athletes, filmmakers, environmentalists, entrepreneurs, in the case of today's guest, and even the occasional everyman. And the idea behind these conversations is to provide you with sort of a multidisciplinary masterclass in personal and professional development with all kinds of tools and keys and information and inspiration to unleash your best, most authentic self. So thank you so much for tuning in today, for sharing the show with your friends and on social media, for reviewing the show, for subscribing to the show on iTunes, and of course, for always using the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com for all your Amazon purchases. We really appreciate that. And on the tip of supporting the show, a bunch of people recently have reached out to me and suggested that I set up a Patreon account for those that are interested in going the extra mile to financially support the show. So I did just that. We literally just set it up. Uh, soon, I'm going to be adding a Patreon banner to the Ritual.com site to make it easy for you guys to find it and all of that. But in the interim, uh, if this interests you, if it feels right to you, you can check it out by going to patreon.com forward slash Rich Roll. that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Rich Roll. We're brought to you today by On I am a total gearhead I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy and I've learned that people often overlook apparel but what you wear isn't just clothes it is without a doubt technology I've been rocking Ons high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in Fleetfoot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. and recovery is wonderful and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. I'm super proud to announce today's show. So if you're in your 20s or your 30s and you're listening to this, it might be hard to imagine a time when not everyone was online, let alone online like all day with our faces planted in our phones. Now, I might be dating myself, but I remember those times quite well. In fact, I went through both college and law school in the pre-internet days, and I still vividly recall this meeting that I had with the managing partner at the first law firm that I worked at back in 1993. And he asked me, he wanted to know why I thought the lawyers at the firm should even have a computer at all, let alone a networked system of computers. I mean, forget about the internet. Now, just imagine this. This was a time when lawyers would write long briefs, like huge documents that would take weeks to compile, and they would do that by speaking into a dictaphone a dictaphone. I remember going into my office uh, the first day of this job. There was no computer on the desk in the office, but there was a dictaphone machine. Now, that seems insane, of course, now, but it wasn't that long ago, you guys. And then I remember around 1994, finding out about this thing called America Online. Now, if you were around then, you might recall seeing those AOL CDs. They were everywhere, piled up in, it seems like every retail store that you would go into. They were ubiquitous. And at the time, I also remember thinking I wasn't all that interested in it, but that would soon change. In fact, it would change everything. And today on the podcast, I'm super thrilled to sit down with the man behind all of this, a man I think it's fair to credit as one of the true maverick entrepreneurs of the digital age, a guy who is a pioneer who made the internet part of everyday life, Steve Case. So Steve Is a guy whose career began when he co-founded America Online in 1985. And that was a time when only 3% of Americans were online. And it took him a decade, uh, a ton of near-death experiences and back-to-the-wall pivots. But under Steve's leadership, AOL will go on to become the world's largest and most valuable internet company, driving worldwide adoption of the medium that has literally transformed everything about how we live today. AOL was the first internet company to go public. It was the top-performing stock of the 1990s, and at its peak, nearly half the users in the U.S. used AOL to go online. In 2000, Steve negotiated a $350 billion merger of AOL and Time Warner. It's the largest merger in business history, and he served as chairman of the world's largest media and communication empire in the entire world until 2003. Today, Steve is chairman and CEO of Revolution, which is a DC based investment firm, as well as serving as chairman of the Case Foundation, which is a philanthropic effort that invests in hundreds of organizations with an entrepreneurial approach to strengthening the social sector. He's also got a new book out. It's called The Third Wave. Uh, It's part memoir, part business playbook, part manifesto. It's got tons of super interesting behind-the-scenes stuff about his life and his professional career with all the ups and the downs that he endured to get where he is today, and what it was actually like to craft the early stages of the internet that we currently enjoy, as well as his take on how the internet evolved to where it is now and where the internet and tech entrepreneurship are headed in the foreseeable future. I really enjoyed the book. It's fantastic. It's a quick, fun, easy read. So I reached out to Steve to see if he would be open to sitting down with me and talking to me about his life and the book and his career while I was in DC. And so here we are. Uh, I only had a very tight 45 minutes with Steve. So much like last week, this is a pretty tightly focused discussion. I didn't have the bandwidth or the time to really go too deep into any one thing the way that I usually do, the way that I prefer to do. But it's great. It's a conversation about the next phase of the internet, what Steve calls the third wave, which involves transforming real world sectors like health, education, transportation, energy and food. It's a conversation about the current state of entrepreneurship in America, particularly in outlier areas outside of the typical tech hotbeds like Silicon Valley and New York and Boston and Los Angeles. It's a campaign that he calls Rise of the Rest. He literally gets in a bus and drives across the country to meet with entrepreneurs. Uh, And it's a conversation about the killer app that made AOL succeed where even Microsoft couldn't. And it's about how success in this emerging new third phase of the internet is going to require three things, partnerships, policy and perseverance so without further ado enjoy my conversation with steve case you good to go i'm good thanks so much steve for uh taking the time it's a pleasure to meet you uh i was very impressed with your book i enjoyed it tremendously thank you and uh, i'm excited to have this opportunity to talk to you about it a little bit great to have you here so uh why don't we just unpack the book a little bit? Um, you know, why did you write it, and uh, and what are you hoping to accomplish by this by this this wonderful book?
0: Well, actually, I kind of resisted writing a book for a long time. I'm 57 years old, never wrote a book before, and people even 15, 20 years ago said, I "Write a bu- book about this or about that." But I was just not interested, not that motivated. And I think the reason for that was I was not so interested in talking about the past, kind of a memoir, I was much more interested in talking about the future, you know, what's mm-hmm. going to happen next. And it was really only you know, a couple of years ago when I realized that there's the two waves we've experienced with the Internet. And the third wave was kind of beginning to build up momentum and that the, each of them were different. But the, you know, the third wave could learn from the first wave and mm-hmm. some of the lessons in those early days of AOL, the early days of the Internet, could help inform the innovators, the entrepreneurs in the third wave. So once I realized that uh, I could write something that really is more leaning into the future, but also tell some stories from the past to help inform, you know, the future, then it became more, more interesting.
1: Right. It was really fascinating to read about the early days of AOL. It kind of reminded me a little bit of that TV show, Halt and Catch Fire. Have you, yeah. have you been watching that? Uh, you know, very different in certain respects, but just the tone and the tenor of what it must have been like at the very inception of, of you know, this industry that now kind of defines our age. It's, yeah, no,
0: that, that people have, when I've been talking about the book, they're, they're really surprised by some of uh-huh. those aspects because particularly younger people grew up with the Internet as just part of everyday Life and PCs and uh, phones and so forth. It, it just when I, when I tell the story of when we got started in, in 1985, so 31 years, ago, only three percent of people were online and they were only online an hour a week. People can't right. believe that. And that, you know, people back then, you know, when I talk about how computers didn't even have modems built in because computer manufacturers didn't think people would want to mm-hmm. get connected. People were like, well, that's that sort of crazy. Uh, so it was fun kind of kind of go back and you know talk about some of those those early days and some of the lessons I tried to hopefully convey around the importance of partnerships to really drive that uh, which are going to become important again and the importance of, of engaging on some of the policy issues and when the internet really became legalized and commercialized there a lot of you know, kind of policy issues to deal with and frankly perseverance that it took us mm-hmm. you know, the better part of a decade before we finally broke through and people decided they wanted to get connected and so those were some of the lessons I learned that I think are going to be applicable in this third wave.
1: Right, so I think there's this idea that America Online was always a large company, was always a behemoth and to see that it was really a scrappy startup in the truest sense of the word and all the energy and work that went into creating inertia out of nothing, right? To establish this kind of infrastructure. I mean, I'm one of those people that, you know, I remember well when those disks were ubiquitous everywhere. I, I mean, how many of those? There were like a hundred million of those yeah, things maybe, maybe
0: even more. I don't know uh-huh. what the number was, but I know it was a lot. They but, were everywhere. Yeah. And, and And
1: that being kind of a defining characteristic of this first wave. And maybe we should just define the three waves so we understand what we're talking about going forward. Well, the
0: first wave really was exactly what we're talking about, getting people connected Mm -hmm. to the Internet, getting people to understand why they should get connected to the Internet. Uh, And it went from that first phase when nobody was connected, nobody cared, uh, to by the end of the first wave, you know, 2000 roughly, everybody was connected and couldn't live without it. So that mm-hmm. that first wave was about the software and the networks and the servers and just building the core foundation, the on-ramp, if you will, and educating people about the, the benefits of getting connected. That then unleashed the second wave, which for the most part, the last 15 years or so has been about Apps and and, and mm-hmm. services riding on top of the internet. So it's things like obviously Facebook and Google and Twitter and Waze and 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 Snapchat, and many other things. It's basically been the app economy. Mobile phones obviously have been the the key you know kind of app platform for that, uh, and a lot of amazing you know companies and, and services have been built on that you know second wave. Uh, but in the third wave, I think it's going to be more about integrating the internet in mm-hmm. seamless and pervasive ways throughout our lives, and the process really change hopefully in positive ways healthcare and education and and uh, transportation energy food some some big parts of our lives big sectors of our economy that haven't changed all that much in the first wave or the second wave. I think will change a lot in the third wave. But it goes back to the original reason to write the book. It's going to require more of what I call the three P's in the book: more focus on mm-hmm. on partnerships, more focus on policy, more focus on perseverance to be a successful innovator in the in the third wave. So the opportunities are vast, but it's going to require a different mindset. I think a different different playbook to to be successful.
1: Right. And there's this idea that past is prologue because. This third wave is really very similar to the first wave, which is something that you have more experience with than, than almost anybody out there. The parallels between, you know, what's going to have to happen, you know, the inertia that's going to have to be created now to move these, you know, gigantic industries—healthcare, food, education, and transportation—into this new era.
0: No, I agree. And, I, and frankly, when I talk to entrepreneurs, particularly in Silicon Valley, but all over the the country, you know, they, they don't necessarily love what I'm saying. The idea that the partnerships are going to be more important. Well, that, that's hard. It's hard. Mm-hmm. It's easier just to, you know, create an app and drop it in the app store and hope you, you know, get lucky and get viral adoption. Partnerships that sometimes will take years to develop is, is, is kind of a, you know, a pain. Similarly, policy the idea that these are regulated businesses you have to deal with governments deal with regulators that's kind of like a bummer who yeah, wants to do that that's that nobody really that's not, pra- sexy. And that's not sexy it's kind of mm-hmm. it's going to be a source of a lot of you know frustration but the reality is you know the the things like the, the drugs we take or the medical devices of course they're going to need to be safe and and you know even things around you know smart cities and you know driverless cars and drones of course they need to be figured out some way to integrate them in a in a network and a fabric where where you know Public safety is, is is part of it, so it's just going to go with the territory. If you want to mm-hmm. innovate in these in the in these sectors, uh, you know the, the role of policy. And again, the, the, the perseverance is kind of a bummer too. Overnight successes are awesome. These dorm room startups that you know a year or two later are you know kind of global brands like Facebook or. Or or Snapchat that that sort of was the model in some ways of the of the second wave. I think in the third wave it's going to be more like the AOL experience, which was sort of a ten year in the making, overnight success. So I think you know I, I understand why people don't necessarily embrace the ne- importance of partnerships, the importance of policy, the importance of perseverance. But I think the ones the winners in the third wave will recognize that's going to be part of the the playbook.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one thing that you have done. Extraordinarily well, and I think that that makes you sort of unique in the tech industry is how fully embedded you are in uh, you know policy initiatives and and being someone who understands how to work with regulators and legislators all the way up to you know all the work that you've done with the various administrations and and the work you've done with Obama et cetera. Um, you know, I'm sure part of that has to do with proximity, being here in Washington D.C. and not in Silicon Valley. But maybe walk us through a little bit of you know the specifics of that and and why that's going to be so important with these larger industries moving forward.
0: I do think some of my interest or, or respect for the the, the the importance of this does come from being in D.C. We started mm-hmm. AOL outside of. DC in, in the Northern Virginia suburbs, you know, three decades ago, and watching that develop and, and building relationships over three decades with, with a variety of people in, in government, I think gives me a, a, a sense of that a perspective. But the other was in those early days, the, the, that first wave of the internet, policy was front and center. You know, it, it's worth remembering, again, this seems sort of odd, but when we started in 1985 uh, with, with our first service, it was illegal for consumers or businesses to connect to the Internet. That's amazing. In the 80s, the Internet was restricted to government institutions and educational institutions. If you work for a government agency or you were working on a, uh, at a university, you could connect to the Internet, but consumers and businesses couldn't. It was only in 1991 when, when it, you know, the Internet was commercialized and partly because of the Mark of Congress passed the, you know, the Telecom Act. President Clinton at the time was a, was an advocate of it, Vice President Gore was a big advocate of what was then called the information superhighway. In some ways, the internet revolution was, was uh, you kick know, kickstarted when a judge here at a district court in DC, Judge Green, broke up the phone company, broke up Ma Bell mm-hmm. and created these regional companies and that unleashed a lot of comp- competition and communications, drove down you know, communications costs, so so I saw firsthand the the importance of, of policy and and really, you know, kind of making that. Po- it's also worth remembering that actually the government did invent the internet. DARPA, right. <laughs> a government agency not too far from here in Northern Virginia, funded you know the creation of the uh, of the internet. So it was it was clear to me not just because I lived here, but because I was living that first wave. You know the 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 role of of government, and that was not that big a deal in the second wave when it really was about apps and services. Facebook and others didn't really need to deal with regulations until they got really big and suddenly people were focused on privacy issues, other kinds of things, but it wasn't something they had to deal with to enter the market. Uh, but the innovations in the in the third wave, you know, take healthcare as, as an example. It's one sixth of the economy. You know, a lot of people obviously are interested in figuring out ways to keep people healthy or better manage chronic disease or or even more life threatening you know, diseases. But that's going to require understanding the policy framework. There's mm-hmm. a reason why there are regulations around drug safety, for example, or or a medical device efficacy. And so, so if you want to innovate in those sectors, you just have to understand uh, the, uh, the the importance of that and factor that into your you're uh, you're your planning, so it's just it's just a different kind of innovation. Uh, the other thing I think will be different in this uh, third wave will be these importance of partnerships, including with the the small companies, the startups, working with the big companies, the Fortune mm-hmm. 500 companies, and in, in sectors like like healthcare. There's a African proverb I love. I cite in the book, which is, "You want to go quickly, you can go alone, mm-hmm. but if you want to go far, you must go together." So right. that spirit of partnership is going to become you know, much more important in the third wave.
1: Right. So the, this second wave is really enjoying the fruits of your labor by breaking open all of these doors. And, and now it's just about trying to get as many eyeballs, as many subscribers to your app as possible and just populating it with as many people and moving forward without necessarily even idea of what your your sort of roadmap to profitability is. Right. Uh, but that's all going to change when we begin to tackle these, these industries in the third wave. Um, it would be great to, because the story is so extraordinary, to just kind of revisit the trajectory of AOL from from where it began to, uh, you know, its ultimate uh, sort of pinnacle of success and the merger with with Time Warner and all of that. If we could recap that a little bit,
0: sure. Well, when we started in '85. It was still early days, and we had a team, a couple dozen people in Tyson's Corner, Virginia, that we raised a million dollars in our first mm-hmm. round, uh, which wasn't a lot at the time. One of the big competitors looming was a joint venture called Prodigy. IBM right. and Sears had put $1 billion into Prodigy, so they had $1 billion. We had $1 million, so we weren't going to win a head-to-head fight. So our strategy in the early days was to to partner. And we partnered with PC manufacturers, Commodore with their Commodore 64, and Radio Shack, and IBM, and, and Apple created a variety of private label servers like AppleLink Personal Edition was, was was one of them. And we did that for the first five years or so, and then And
1: it it really grew out of a pivot out of another business model though. It wasn't originally the original intention was not to, you know, connect America.
0: No, originally when I moved to the DC area, I was to join a startup in 1983 that was focused on Atari game machines. But mm-hmm. but they launched with fanfare; they immediately kind of hit the wall and 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 were you know kind of teetering on bankruptcy. So it was my first wake up call that startups is <laughs> sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But yeah, out of that, two of the people I met at that company, Jim Kimsey and Mark Seraph, and I became the co founders of of AOL in, in, in 1985, but that first strategy for us, because we didn't have a lot of capital in the competition, not just from, from Prodigy, but from others at the time, like CompuServe, which was owned by H&R Block, and AT&T, and you know, Citigroup, a lot of people were making investments in, in different uh, interactive services back then. And so we have to figure out a way to enter this market with partnership, and so focusing on these private label services with, with computer companies was was the way to get going. We also early on, you know, thankfully focused on community as the mm-hmm. killer app. We always believed that the, the killer app, the internet, was people. Yeah. And at the time, there a lot of people thought it would be content would be the killer right. app, particularly the media companies, newspapers, TV networks, all thought content was the key. Uh, some thought commerce would be key. Sears, a backer prodigy, thought electronic commerce, electronic shopping would be the you know, really, the key. We thought community was going to be the key, so we launched things like instant messaging and buddy lists and, and all kinds of things, and and created texting and other kind of next, uh, you, know, you know, kind of generation you know, services because we thought community was. Uh, was important. And it was only after the first five years or so that we then united our services, uh, these private label independent services, one for the Commodore 64, one for the Apple II, one for the, uh, the Tandy computer, et cetera, into one unified service, which we call the America Online. That's really when things started to really accelerate.
1: Right. I think the the defining characteristic really was this idea that community and people was going to carry the day as opposed to content, um, and, and creating these, these, uh, these partnerships. Obviously Obviously, super important in getting traction and, and, and beginning. But once it, and and I think the other thing it seems to me, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, was just the the sort of sheer accessibility of it and the user friendliness of it. Right. The idea that you were aiming towards the average, you know, soccer mom getting online as opposed to the hobbyist.
0: Yeah, no, the, those early days, the getting online was difficult. It was it was challenging. It was it was it was uh, hard. It was expensive. Uh, I remember the early early days when we got started. About ten dollars an hour to be connected. Mm-hmm. That's why one of the reasons why people weren't using it that much. So we knew if it was going to become a mass medium. It had to be much easier to use, much more useful, much more fun, and much more affordable. We just kept kind of whacking away, trying to you know, deal with all of those. So the simplicity of the software was was a big priority for us. Trying to lower the, the cost of communication so we could lower the price of the access was was a was a, a big focus. And that again took you know, partnerships and took perseverance. It really right. was the you know. A, Decade before, finally the communications cost was lower. Finally, every PC was shipping with a built-in modem. You know, finally things like the World Wide Web were you know, created. that kind of helped to create a new platform for content creation and and, and distribution. But there are a lot of things that had to go in place in that. In that first decade, to then you know drive the the adoption in the second decade,
1: right? Like looking back, it, it's almost amazing that a you had to convince people
0: of the value
1: of being online. Oh yeah, that this was a huge.
0: More no, yeah, of it, the minds. That it's you had hard to, to wage. believe now because everybody yeah. takes it for granted. But most people back then, thirty years ago, when we were talking about the getting online, they kind of looked kind of quizzically and said, "Like, why would like normal people do that?" It Seems mm-hmm. like it's some computer hobbyists kind of nerds might do that. But it's never. Gonna, even when we went public, we went pub took uh, AOL Public in 1992 as the first internet company to go right. public. Uh, so we were educating people not just about AOL and our business model, but what the internet was and why we thought it would someday be a big deal. And, and most investors just looked at us like, you know, we were crazy. Right. They, and the they,
1: IPO raised like only like 10 million bucks. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah, we, we raised 10 million dollars. in market value of the day we went public was 70 million dollars, right. uh, <laughs> and uh, and then eight years later, it went from 70 million to 160 billion. So it was the best performing stock of the decade. But when we first went public, you know, it was sort of like a tree falling on a forest. Nobody knew or cared who we were or what right. we were going to do. It took, took a little bit of time before people kind of figured out that there's something interesting brewing here and that. It was well positioned to help get America online.
1: Was there a specific moment where you knew it was going to work and it locked in, or was it a progressive growth of adoption?
0: It was progressive, but there were a few kind of you know, going back and I, obviously thinking about this in the context of writing a book. I kind of identified a few kind of pivotal moments. One was that IPO, which was like I think kind of put the the internet as a business on the map. But another was you know two or three years later when we switched to unlimited pricing and our usage skyrocketed, our systems basically crashed, and we were you know down for 23 hours people mm-hmm. couldn't access you know, things and what was surprising to that at one level obviously was frustrating and disappointing because we'd encourage people to you know get online and do their email and and, and you know, other other things with us and trust us and we were kind of letting them down but the other side of it which which was for me a little bizarre uh, was it was the lead story of every TV network and the headline of almost mm. every newspaper in the country. The, you know, the fact that AOL was down for 23 hours was this national story. And even a few years before, if we had been down not for 23 hours, but for 23 days, nobody would have noticed or cared. <laughs> you might have gotten so, a
1: couple angry phone Yeah, I was, calls like, okay, was like, okay,
0: what? I don't know what that is. I, I could care less. So it, it over, you know, relatively quickly, it, you know, it had progressed to be kind of this this fundamental, almost utility, almost like electricity or, or something. And and in those early days, a decade before, it was we were completely uh, off on the sidelines. Even I'd go to computer conferences, I'd be you know the only guy there talking about the online world, talking about the internet, and they're like, "What are you doing?" Like right. it's like you should you know, focus on semiconductors, or focus on software, or focus on computers, or something. You know, I don't know what you're doing with this online services thing. But eventually, it got you know got traction, and I think that that eventual aspect, that perseverance aspect, is one of the lessons that I learned there that I think is going to be important in this third wave.
1: Mm-hmm. And the push to unlimited pricing was really motivated by this you know, infamous clash that you had with Bill Gates right. and, and, and Microsoft, right? Like this, this meeting that you had with Bill Gates where he told you he was going to crush you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you kind of you know, sticking to your guns and deciding that you weren't going to buckle under the pressure or sell to him and, and go head to head.
0: Yeah, it's easy to look at that in retrospect. At the time, I was pretty nervous, and it's I like out board of was movie. kind of kind of <laughs> freaked out. But uh, no, we 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 we'd gone public. Had been a you know a couple of years. We were starting to get a little bit of traction, uh, but still hadn't really taken off. And you know, Microsoft was was very powerful. The yeah. Windows operating system, again, get like ninety nine percent market share, and they they said they were going to bundle an online service with every copy of, of Windows, and then essentially have instant you know kind of. Marketing when people first turn on their computers, suddenly Microsoft would, would be there and and we would not be there. So it was it was scary, it, uh, but we we believed in what we were doing, and and it was close call. You know, there were certainly some some investors, some board members who were like, "Yeah, hey, maybe we should just quit while right. we're ahead." Take I mean, you were how old were you
1: at the time? Twenty six or something? No, I was like a little. I was,
0: when the company started, I was uh, twenty six. By the time this was happening, I was early thirties, thirty 32, uh-huh. 33, something like that. Um, but yeah you know, we we decided to you know decline the Microsoft offer to acquire us and and uh, and, and kind of stay on our own path and and uh, thankfully, you know things worked for us. The you know the momentum we had with consumers was, was and the kind of word of mouth was was uh, strong. That's also when we really stepped up our marketing efforts, including the blizzard of free trial discs that we uh, kind of sent across the country because we just realized it was never going to be easier or cheaper to gain market share. That we needed to gain as much momentum as we could before Microsoft and others who were focused on the market really. Kind of, kind of went into attack mode, so we really, in the you know, mid-90s really, tried to step up our efforts to, to gain market share, and it paid off. It really
1: is a David and Goliath story, um, and it's amazing that Microsoft's play didn't work. Like, why do you think MSN didn't prevail?
0: Well, I think it's a bunch of reasons. I think Microsoft is extremely uh, talented company. Bill Gates obviously is, is is brilliant. If it's the only thing they were doing, I, I think they probably would have won. The fact that it was one of dozens of things they were doing, and their core business really was operating systems, and their secondary business was application software, right. and, and you know the you know the internet, the Microsoft Network online services was you know somewhere in the on deck circle, but was not their main focus. I think I think helped. I think also they probably brought a little bit more of a Engineering mentality to the design of the service, as opposed to a consumer mentality. Right. they that's changed in the last a you know, couple of decades. I think they've gotten better on some consumer products, but in uh, services. But in the mid nineties, that was not their their, their core competency. Uh, and we had a great team at AOL that really was passionate, and a lot of you know advocates in the community supporting what we were, uh, we were doing. So I think it, it was partly things that they didn't do that they could have done, uh, and partly things that we were we in retrospect we did we did well. So
1: the company grows. I mean, it just explodes literally until I think you grow it to $163 billion uh, valuation. Um, The stock market is, you know, through the roof. And you reach this moment where you realize, like, you know, maybe this may not last forever. It's probably going to be wise to, you know, merge or, or start acquiring other companies to stabilize this for the long haul. And that's where Time Warner comes in, which on paper seems like a fantastic idea. The idea that you could partner with, you know, such a vast enterprise that would create stability, you know, for the long haul, uh, you know, I think at the time obviously seemed like a phenomenal idea. So how does this come together and and play out?
0: Yeah, the first step was in the late 90s, as our market value increased, we did use our stock to buy a couple dozen companies, Mm -hmm. Netscape and other other companies. That was the first step. But we did conclude that it was appropriate to do sort of more of a, Transformative merger, uh, in part to have a more diversified mix of businesses, so we weren't relying on just just one business, the Core AOL business, uh, but also because we needed a path to broadband. We were the leader in narrowband when it was an era of dial up modems. We Mm -hmm. didn't have a path to. Broadband. We actually argued on the policy side for including with with Congress and the FCC for what we called open access, forcing the cable companies, the broadband providers, to open up their networks just as the telephone networks had been required. But they chose not to. So we we realized that if we're going to be you know, relevant, let alone a leader in the broadband age, we needed to have more of a direct partnership or or own cable systems. And so that was a, a, a driver as well. So we considered a variety of different things. And I lay out in the book some of the options we were considering, but ultimately it concluded the best you know thing for us would be to merge with. Time Warner, the leading you know, broadband company, with Time Warner Cable, and they also had tremendous content assets that we knew would be valuable in the digital world. Warner Music was the leading music company. You know, Turner Broadcasting, mm-hmm. home box office, HBO were uh, big players. Home, the Warner Brothers you know, Studios, Time Inc. with on the on the you know, magazine you know, side of things. So it was really a an awesome company with great media assets. Their future in the digital world was unclear, just as our future in the broadband world was unclear. Uh, but we did believe that you know together the companies could do things they couldn't do separately, but, and this Mm -hmm. is the, you know, one of the big takeaways from the uh, the book that, you know, I quote Thomas Edison, who uh, a century ago said, vision without execution is hallucination. So, yes, the idea of the merger made sense, but it didn't work uh, because of execution. And that didn't work largely because we didn't get the people, you know, lined around the right priorities at Time Warner historically had been a lot of independent businesses. Time Inc. and Warner Brothers and Turner Broadcasting and HBO all really operated as separate independent companies and the only way to make this merger work was to think about them in a more integrated way as, as one company. But that just isn't what happened. And, right. and uh, so it was frustrating to, you know, to watch It's part of the deal. I stepped aside as, as CEO and, and was just going to be you know, chairman of the board. But after a couple of years, I realized that it was time for me to go. I wasn't working in the way I was hoping or anybody really was was hoping. And so that, you know, the big takeaway there is is around execution and really around people and, and, and culture.
1: It it seems to me that the cultures were so different that even, no matter who would have been sitting at the top, that I'm not sure that leadership could have solved it. Like if you were to ask Jerry Levin how it went left, or if you were to have, you know, sat in the CEO chair as opposed to being chairman of the board and then, you know, rolled up your sleeves and gotten more involved. Do you think that it, it it could have worked out or do you think the cultural divide was just too great?
0: I think the cultural divide was great, but I think if the timing had been a little different, you know, the, the merger actually ended up being done at the peak of the internet boom and then the stock market cratered and, you know, a lot of companies that gone public actually went out of business. And so as as the stock price fell, that created pressures around earnings and frustrations, or you know, with people watching their the value of their stock options, you know. Decline. So if we'd done it a little bit earlier, it might have been differently. And I think it's possible that a different, different leader, I mean, somebody like Steve Jobs, was was had done a good job of, of, of bridging the world of technology mm-hmm. and, and media, his work with uh, not just Apple, but also you know, Pixar. So if somebody like Steve Jobs had run the company and it had been, you know, the timing had been a little different, you know, I think the result could have been different. But I just realized early on that it's not a lot of value in the woulda, coulda, shoulda, right. you know, kind of you know, dynamics. So I've just, you know, tried to learn th- some of those lessons and try to help. You know, tell some of those stories with the hope that innovators in the future in this third wave might might learn from uh, from some of those. In this case, you know, the the AOL shifted from really being an attacker, uh, a disruptor, uh, you know, to more of a defender kind of more kind of protecting you know, the status quo, and, and and that happened particularly after the merger. But some of that was creeping in even before the merger. The company went from dozens of people to hundreds of people to thousands of people. Uh, it, it, the dynamic changed. And so the, the takeaway for, for me that I share with the, the entrepreneurs we work with uh, here at, at uh, Revolution is you've got to continue to maintain that, that attacker mentality uh, and recognize that you have to keep you know, pivoting and adjusting what you're doing, but you have to be leaning in the future focused on what's happening next. Not not just celebrating what just happened,
1: right? Right. So, you know, you've kind of spanned the spectrum from these incredibly high highs of you know AOL at its absolute peak, and I'm sure it was very disappointing when the the merger didn't work out, and we, you know you saw the these plummeting stock prices, etc. But you know, I want to talk about mentality a little bit because you strike me as somebody who doesn't really dwell on the past too much. You 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 have always been able to always keep your focus looking forward. Um, To perhaps learn from those past experiences but to not you know allow yourself to be destroyed by them and you know you've seen that with other high level you know executives when things don't go well it kind of you know the whole thing just the bottom falls out from underneath it and they're unable to recover and move forward so what do you think it is about you that has allowed you to continue to innovate? And I don't
0: forward. know. I think it partly is just, a, as I said at the very beginning, in, in, more interest in what's happening next, the future, and so that by definition means you're not spending a lot of time looking in the review mirror. I think personality wise, temperament wise, I've always been kind of even-tempered even when, you know, in the go-go days of AOL when things were, uh, were going great, I used to, you know, say I need to delegate paranoia and figure out mm-hmm. ways to, you know, make people, you know, make sure they don't get cocky or are complacent, and the flip side, there are many times with, when I was running AOL where things were looking uh, dire, including when Microsoft was entering the market, uh, and I tried to kind of be the company's shock absorber, try to kind of even out those highs and lows and kind of be kind of steady, just whether things are going really great or things are going, you know, kind of, you know, poorly, I think. So some, some of it's just a mindset kind of uh, dynamic, but the other, to be honest, is that even though I was frustrated by what happened with the merger and, and uh, how people think about the merger, uh, I also, even to this day, think it was the right thing for AOL shareholders, right. which was my my principal you know, job. We had, you know, seen the as I said earlier, the stock go from seventy million dollars to one hundred sixty three billion dollars in eight <laughs> years. It had gone from twenty billion to one hundred sixty billion in, in uh-huh. like one year. So it was a you know, phenomenal ride, and and shifting from that one business uh, to a diverse mix of businesses. AOL had, I think, it was five billion of revenue and one billion of profit. The combined AOL Time Warner had forty billion of revenue and ten billion of profit. Uh, and we own 55% of that combined company. So it was, it was the right call, even though it was uh, the execution of that was, no, was not right. And obviously, you know, it, it continues to be a source of frustration. In the wake of that, why start
1: revolution? Why become a venture capitalist as opposed to creating another startup?
0: Well, I enjoyed, obviously, the AOL journey and and uh, learned a lot from it, but I just decided after we did the merger it would be more interesting, I think maybe a way to contribute more to work with a number of entrepreneurs, you know, tar- targeting a variety of different, different sectors. So taking on some of these third-wave sectors, whether it be you know, food or education or, or, or healthcare or, or transportation and you know, backing companies like Zipcar, which was mm-hmm. the, one of the real innovators 15 years ago and, in, in car sharing and, and, or more recently some companies in the food space, like a sweet green, that's kind of do a healthier, probably healthier options for people. And, uh, and the fast casual restaurants or revolution foods doing that with, the. Uh, uh, with, with, with schools just trying to be a champion of entrepreneurs uh, in these in these sectors, including entrepreneurs all over the country. What we call the rise of the rest. I think there's too much focus in places like Silicon Valley right. and New York, not enough focus in other parts of the you know the country. So being a, in general a cheerleader for entrepreneurship, an advocate for uh, for entrepreneurs, and investing in and backing and mentoring and supporting you know a lot of entrepreneurs doing a lot of different things in a lot of different sectors and a lot of different places felt to me like the you know the right move and it's worked out really well i've been I've been delighted to have this platform if you will uh, where i have you know some ability to help the next generation of entrepreneurs take their ideas and really scale them into significant iconic companies
1: yeah i want to get into the rise of the rest uh, movement mm-hmm. it's really super interesting and it's very cool but before we do that I'm interested in why you said that you're not necessarily interested in, you know, in chasing the unicorns, uh, sort of taking the tack that maybe the Andreessen and Horowitzes and the Chris Saka's of the world have, have, you know, sort of explored. So what was the what's the rationale behind
0: that? Well, we obviously, when we're making investments, we want to have su- significant you know, companies. We just rather catch them a little bit earlier. So rather mm-hmm. than you know, f- you know, invest in them when they're already worth a few billion dollars, we'd rather invest in them when they're worth you know, 20 or $30 million on the venture side or maybe two or $300 million with our growth. We have a Revolution Ventures Group and a Re- Revolution... Uh, growth groups. So we want to help create these unicorns, not just invest in them after the fact. But obviously, there are different different firms that have different strategies. I'm not saying ours is better. It's just it's just what we're more comfortable doing, and in, in a way we think we can you know, add the most value to you know to entrepreneurs in the long run, generate the best return for for investors.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well. With this explosion of the tech economy, have come a rise in uh, you know cost of living expenses in the Silicon Valley's and you know New York City, you know, San Francisco, these hotbeds of tech innovation. And yet, at the same time, with the democratization of information access, uh, it doesn't matter where you live so much. And uh, this is something that you've kind of identified and put your sort of money in your mouth behind in this Rise of the Rest movement, mm-hmm. to the extent that you're actually getting on a bus and, dry, and driving mm-hmm. around to these interesting places to meet young entrepreneurs in the overlooked you know cities across America. So what has that experience been like? It it's been,
0: been great. I think I've visited a, a couple dozen cities in the last few years, and, and what's happening, all of them, is a remarkable momentum in terms of their startup community. But they're generally off the beaten track. It's generally not getting media attention, generally not getting investor attention. I think that will change and needs to change. I think we need to have a more evenly dispersed innovation economy, and we need to make sure that anybody anywhere with an idea has a shot, even the shot at the American dream, and, and it, it right now things are tilted in certain directions. Last year, 75 percent of venture capital went to just three states, California, New York, and Massachusetts. And California, New York, New York, and Massachusetts are great states, and there's a lot of innovation there. There will continue to be a lot of innovation there. We want to focus on the other 47 states where they're also you know, great entrepreneurs with great ideas, building great companies, but but not as many people kind of championing their, you know, their ideas and trying to help them scale their their company. So the, the purpose of the Rise Rest really to to educate people around uh, the country about what's happening, uh, mostly in the middle of the country. We visited places like Detroit and Pittsburgh and Des Moines and Madison and St. Louis and Kansas City and New Orleans and Atlanta and you know mm-hmm. Charleston. Uh, this fall will be heading the southwest and and going to places like uh, Lincoln, Nebraska and Omaha and and uh, Provo and Salt Lake and, and Phoenix and Albuquerque and and you know, and, and Denver these are you know, cities on the rise that have interesting things happening in terms of what the startups are doing and even in the process are you know, seeing interesting kind of innovations in terms of, uh, of, of civic engagement even the rebuilding of neighborhoods that because of the you know the work of, of the mm-hmm. entrepreneurs there so we're trying to kind of promote the rise of the rest trying to celebrate these entrepreneurs try to shine more of a spotlight on them so their stories get told uh, and investors you know don't just Get in cars to drive to the companies, you know, in Silicon Valley. But they also get on planes to fly to meet some of these these entrepreneurs in the in the in the middle of the country. I think they'll be surprised that there really are you know great companies being built. Some examples are the hottest uh, virtual reality, really mixed reality company right now is they raised one point three billion dollars of venture capital. It's not in Silicon Valley. It's not in Boston. Magic it, Leap. It's in Fort Lauderdale,
1: yeah. Florida. Yeah, Magic yeah, Leap. Yeah.
0: Or or uh-huh. you know, recently. Uh, uh, Salesforce a couple of years ago paid three billion dollars to buy a company called Exact Target in in, in Indianapolis. They have two thousand employees in Indianapolis, one of the hottest you know, companies now in in health tech. But started with athletic whereas Under Armour, they're based in in Baltimore. Oh, wow. So you're you're seeing this happen, and we're just trying to help tell those stories and help tell the stories so of the next Under Armours, the next you know kind of generation of of, of of companies, and just give them a little bit more visibility and give them a little bit more access to capital, not just from Revolution, you know, my investment firm, but also. So encouraging other investors to to look at what's happening in these rise of the rest cities. What has you really excited about
1: this next wave of innovators and tech entrepreneurs? Like what, you know, beyond maybe the obvious, okay, virtual reality, you know, uh, and, and the like, what are you seeing right now that you think people aren't noticing or paying enough attention to that you think is super exciting or has potential to shift culture?
0: Well, I think what's exciting to me about this third wave is the things that are being tackled are some of the most important aspects of our lives. It's you know, how we stay healthy. It's how our kids learn. It's how we move around cities and how we manage you know, energy, what we eat. I mean, these are pretty basic fundamental mm-hmm. things and in big industries, big sectors that are kind of ripe for disruption. So that general third wave thesis interests me and, and the, the whole idea that I try to, to convey in the book why partnerships are more important, policies more important. Perseverance is more important. But the two other things that interest me also happen to be P's are place, which really ties into the rise of the rest, what we just talked about, and purpose. I'm really inspired by this next generation of entrepreneurs that are kind of rejecting the traditional Milton Friedman notion that businesses should focus exclusively on maximizing profit. I think there's a growing number of companies, you see this with B Corps, now there's 2,000 B Corps that are registered. They're saying, you're sure profit's important. Mm -hmm. Sure we have to figure out a way to be profitable and sustainable and generate returns for our investors, uh, but at the same time, we need to have purpose. We need to have impact. We need to identify the impact we're going to have and measure that and report on that. And so that, I think that's really driving a new mindset in terms of entrepreneurship, a new mindset in terms of, of business. So it's a, the, the, the three core P's of the third wave around, you know, partnership, policy, perseverance, I think are interesting. And some of the sectors ripe for disruption are, are really, you know, really going to, it's going to be fun to watch what happens there. But it's also going to be fun to watch the place aspect, the rise, the rest aspect is not going to happen just in the places you expect. It's going to happen all over the country, indeed, all over the world. Mm-hmm. And also watch the purpose aspect, the, you know, the growth of impact investing and and more purpose-driven uh, business. It's interesting to see the rise of
1: social entrepreneurship and uh, the importance of you know cultivating a a culture of. Of uh, of giving back that's baked into the business plan itself, right? This idea of conscious capitalism, and and that seems to be you know working very well for some of the fastest growing companies, right? Yeah, now.
0: and I think it's I think the the model thirty years ago was if you know, you built a business, if you're successful building that business, at some point maybe the company creates a little foundation within the company. We did that. We created an AOL foundation. And at some point, the, the the people who led that company and have generated a lot of wealth often will create their own kind of foundation. And we created, so my wife and I have uh, the Case Foundation, really nearly 20 years ago. But that was sort of the traditional model. You know, sort of the business was really the focus. And then at some point you focused on giving back. The The emerging model is to integrate that into the core purpose of the the business. And some of the businesses that we've backed the revolution really have done that. Shinola, for example, right. their core purpose was creating jobs in Detroit, taking a city that had been abandoned because of you know, the you know, global competition and in, in cars and, and really retrain you know people to, to build stuff and prove that you know manufacturing can be done in in, in, the, in the United States that was their core purpose then they decided to start by building watches and over time building you know you know leather goods and and, and other things or you know, revolution foods a company we backed uh, that focused on you know, school lunches their purpose was really how do you make sure kids actually have healthier lunches it, it ties in with with you know the habits they learn about health early on it ties in with their their, their learning outcomes how do you do that in the process creating you know, hopefully thousands of, uh, of of jobs. So of course, these, when we're backing these, we are backing them, trying to understand what the investment returns will be for for, for our our investors, and and that that has to be a key you know, priority. But also looking at ways that they're beyond the profit. There's also can be a stated purpose that you report on. I think that's becoming more and more interesting. You've seen just in the last year, big private equity firms like Bain have started an impact fund, a big money management, asset right. management firm mm-hmm. like BlackRock, the largest world, started a, an impact a, Initiative, So it's beginning to get real traction. I think it will accelerate in the third wave. I think the dynamics in the third wave around these sectors ripe for disruption are going to start converging with the dynamics around place, the rise of the rest, and the dynamics around purpose and and things like uh, impact investing. So each of these things right now are developing on their own momentum and will continue to, but they will all accelerate as as they come together to really power the third wave.
1: When we look at some of these huge uh, sectors of the economy, take health care, for example, um you know, you and I both know you go to the doctor. Most of the files are still on paper. Right. Very few healthcare professionals are using their iPads, and even some of the technology that's currently available is not integrated into this system. Uh, I would imagine that the barriers to this have to do with privacy, and you know, it's it's the regulatory landscape. Um, you know, how are we going to? You know, how is the third wave going to best address this to transform these industries and and create the efficiencies and the the you know, the 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 level of of helpfulness that they have the potential to provide us.
0: Well, I think it's good. it goes back to some of the things we talked about. I think it's going to take time, so perseverance is going to matter. It's going to take engagement, understanding the policy framework, uh, and it's also going to require partnerships. So th- this is a you know, healthcare in particular is an area where you can't go it alone. You must go together. Mm-hmm. And There's one company, Kaizen with the Rise of Risk, called Epic that's based in Madison, Wisconsin. I think they have now 10,000 employees. They've emerged as a as a leader in electronic medical records because they've taken the long view and figure out ways to kind of work with and partner with, with, with hospital systems all around the yeah. <laughs> You know the the country, so that's going to be the mentality. We're going to have to shift away from creating an app and dropping in the app store and hoping hoping you get a nice you know <coughs> review and, and you know people kind of talk about it on in social channels and it gets virally adopted to you know figuring out ways to take that software and integrate it into the, the workflow of hospitals or the workflow of professors on university you know, you know campuses. So that's that's why this third wave is going to require a different uh, different mindset in healthcare specifically. It, it, there's a there's really three parts to it. How do you stay healthy? How do you manage chronic disease? How do you manage more life threatening disease? Not surprising that in the last few years, most of the focus and investment has been in the first, the wellness side, because that is more of a consumer chooses, consumer mm-hmm. pays. If somebody wants to track their steps, they go to Best Buy and buy a Fitbit. Does, they, don't, they don't need a prescription from their doctor. They don't worry about copay or reimbursement. They just make that decision. And so that makes it easier. It's more of a consumer driven business. So as you start getting into chronic disease, managing diabetes and heart disease and with different medical devices, it becomes more. Complicated, and as you get into helping think about genomics and and personalized you know medicine around you know cancer. It gets much more complicated. So we're beginning to see the innovators focus on those those more challenging segments of healthcare. So I'm optimistic that if you look you know 10 20 years from now, we will have a healthcare system. It is more convenient. It does provide better outcomes and does it at lower cost. But it's going to take a take the long term view and this next generation of third wave entrepreneurs and innovators uh, to to recognize the playbook is changing. Systemically, though, it's a system
1: that's set up on prescribe or uh, diagnose and prescribe, right? And and there needs to be a way to to integrate preventive uh, techniques into the very system itself and i see that as the the biggest change as opposed to just dealing with sick people right. and prescribing them medication how do we prevent them from No we we
0: call it the healthcare system but really is a sick care system right. it's managed manage illness as opposed to keeping people healthy but as i said some of the innovation that's starting to happen uh, in sectors like like uh, the you know the wellness sector and it's not just the, the the devices like fitbit it's also the the food i think there's a growing recognition that you really are what you eat and and you know healthcare really begins at at the end of your fork and that's why there's a lot of innovation now happening in in the you know food and the you know 5 trillion dollar industry that everybody eats every day uh, and so that's one way to attack the healthcare system uh, is through the, the prism of, of trying to educate people about you know what what they should eat, and give them healthier, more convenient, more affordable options to the the things that, that that make the most sense. So these are multifaceted system problems. It's not gonna it's not gonna happen overnight. It's not gonna just be one company with you know one app. It's gonna be how these things get integrated. Similarly, we you know talked a little bit about smart cities. Very exciting what's happening there, but it's gonna require people working together in a networked way and getting the policy right. Uh, otherwise, the promise of autonomous vehicles or the promise of drones or other things is just never going to really you know, be something that most people can be, you know, benefit from in their in their everyday lives.
1: Right, right. So,
0: you know, we're in this age
1: of the rise of the entrepreneur, the entrepreneur is rock star and the narrative that gets propagated across the world is the one of, you know, Evan Spiegel or, you know, it's like this, you know, you build an app and overnight, you're just getting millions of eyeballs on that. And this is your path to success. And in in many ways, I feel like I can distill down, we can distill down your message to not so fast. Like this is this is going to be a long road. Roll up your sleeves. How committed are you really to seeing this through if you really want to be successful in this in this third wave? Like an yeah, antidote to I, the overnight. I you think know.
0: that's right. That's not to say that there won't continue to be some overnight successes. There won't be opportunities for apps and and other services to continue to prevail. And the you know the success of an Evan or others is you know, it should be celebrated. But I do think as as you focus on some of these more difficult challenges in terms of how do we create a learning system that is more personalized. And, and adaptive. And sure, some of that's going to be apps. Some of it's going to be learning in the cloud. But it's also going to be figuring out better ways to help teachers in a fourth grade classroom. and better ways to help you know professors on on college campuses. How do they modify what they're doing based on some of this technology and some of this you know this data? Those are more difficult challenges, and it's going to require a different mindset. Which is why the partnerships are going to become more and more important. The understanding and being a little more respectful on the policy front is going to become more important. And perseverance can become more important because they're a difficult problems. They're not going. To be they don't lend themselves to overnight, you know, instant solutions and, and overnight successes. So I think this next generation of entrepreneurs, if they embrace some of these mm-hmm. challenges and realize the playbook is changing and, and hopefully do it in a more purpose-driven kind of way, hopefully do it in more places than we saw in the, in the second wave, then, yeah, I'm pretty optimistic about what's going to happen in this, uh, in this third wave, and I think it's going to happen not just in this country but all around the world. Policy, partnerships... Perseverance. Exactly. That's it, right there.
1: Um, I know you got to go. I uh, hope you can indulge me with two really quick questions to round it out. Uh, The first one is, um, what What is the advice that you would give to your younger self, that guy back uh, in the startup days uh, of AOL? You know, what have you learned that you know you would tell that guy?
0: Well, part of it is. is Fighting a battle worth fighting, tackling a problem worth tackling. And so some of the things I'm excited by in the third wave are exactly those kind of things. How do you really play a you know, a critical role in unleashing a different kind of healthcare system, or a different kind of you know kind of learning system, or improving our our, our food system. You know, kind of picking picking some 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 big battles and, and battles worth fighting, and then taking the long term view, recognizing it's you know, entrepreneurship is a team sport. It's not just about you; it's about the team you built. The partnerships do matter. How do you build a network around your? Uh, your idea, of perseverance does matter. So, how do you take the long term view? These, these, these are, these are. You're gonna, you're gonna hit some stumbles. You're gonna mm-hmm. hit some bumps in the road. Sometimes you're gonna run into the wall, but you just have to keep going. You have to keep, keep fighting.
1: I love it. Final question do you still
0: have an AOL email of account? Of course I still have an AOL email. <laughs> yeah. Of
1: course. What kind of question is
0: that? I an AOL you email it? address. I think it's going to be like the, the vinyl records. The LPs were, yeah. are coming coming back. They, they're so uncool. Right. They become cool again. All the so millennials all you folks are out start there who are AOL listening again. to this that have your AOL <laughs> email, you keep them. So you're do you gonna, have any of those you're gonna discs? Be, suddenly you're going to be one of the cool kids again.
1: Do you have any of the discs I do around have here in the office? Of the I think everybody has disks. you got to sign one of those discs and give it to me. All right. I would love to I that. All right. Thanks so much. Steve, thank you it was great it. fun peace plants all right we did it what do you guys think definitely a much shorter interview than i'm used to but i really appreciate steve taking the time and hopefully you guys enjoyed it and are left with some interesting things to ponder about these fascinating times that we live in Of course, please make a point to check out the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com. i got tons of links and resources, hyperlinks, all kinds of stuff to take your infotainment and uh, education beyond the earbuds. Also, don't forget to sign up for my newsletter. In addition to weekly podcast updates, you'll get exclusive access to something called Roll Call. It's a short, free email blast every Thursday with instructive recommendations and resources, just a few things that I've discovered, enjoyed, found helpful. It's really short, I'm never gonna spam you. So if that sounds like something you're into, you'd be interested in, you can sign up for it at richroll.com. Also, I thought I'd mention I have a few online classes, if you're into that kind of thing. The Ultimate Guide to Plant-Based Nutrition, which is all about diet and food, of course, getting plant-based. Also, The Art of Living with Purpose, which is about setting and achieving goals. And thirdly, how to build a conscious relationship, which is, of course, about relationships. And you can find all of those at MindBodyGreen. Uh, you can click classes in the upper left-hand corner on the homepage. They're all multiple hours of streaming video content and downloadable PDFs and all kinds of good stuff. I'm really proud of them. and. Uh, I think they're great. So check those out if that speaks to you. Uh, What else? Uh, Go to richroll.com for all your Plant Power merch and swag needs. I got signed copies of Finding Ultra on the Plant Power way. We got cool Plant Power t-shirts, tech tees, other swag and merch. Good stuff. I want to thank everyone who helped put on the show today. Jason Camiolo for audio engineering and production. Sean Patterson for help on graphics. Chris Swan for production assistance and help with compiling the show notes. And theme music by Analemma thanks for all the support you guys and i will see you back here soon make it great peace plants